This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, my name is Jared Rutter, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at the University of Utah. And I'm going to tell you in the next 30 minutes or so about a story that my lab has been engaged in for the last uh, few years, trying to understand a little bit more about the fuel and the fire uh, uh, that uh, relate to mitochondria. So this project comes from one that I alluded to in the first part of this series, where my lab has set out to discover the functions of previously uncharacterized mitochondrial proteins. And this project is a little bit different because we actually studied proteins that have very well-known functions, but turned out to have additional roles that were not previously well-defined. And that, these proteins turn out to control the process of respiration. And that's what I'm going to tell you about today. So to do that, I need to remind you of something that I talked about in the first part in, in some detail, which is mitochondrial respiration and the, and the process whereby uh, our cells in mitochondria consume food and enable the production of ATP very efficiently. So this initiates in mitochondria with the consumption of uh, acetyl-CoA by the TCA cycle. And the TCA cycle extracts the, the, the electrons from the acet acetyl group of acetyl-CoA and conveys those electrons to the electron transport chain, as shown here, via electron carriers like NADH. Those electrons then flow down through the electron transport chain through a series of very elegant complexes, um, eventually being uh, uh, donated to oxygen, in the, uh, producing uh, water. And in the process of doing that, protons are pumped from the mitochondrial matrix to the intermembrane space. And then as those protons flow back down that gradient, that fuels the production of ATP from ADP and phosphate by ATP synthase. And again, talked about this in much more detail in the first part. I want to point this out because this is a really elegant and very important process. I think one of the most elegant processes that occurs in biology. This very complex system for extracting energy from food and then conveying that energy through a series of steps that ena eventually enable that energy to be used to make that uh, phosphodiester bond to make ATP from ADP and phosphate. But this very elegant system brings several challenges. One of those challenges is just the sheer complexity of each one of these complexes. So just referencing complex one, for example, complex one has 44 different subunits, seven of which are encoded by the mitochondrial genome and synthesized in the mitochondrial matrix. The 37 others are synthesized in the cytosol by cytosolic ribosomes and are imported. Those proteins all need to find each other in the, in the appropriate uh, stoichiometry and assemble into this very specific uh, macromolecular complex that we call complex one. Very important, uh, very difficult assembly process intrinsically 
that is made a little more difficult by the fact that mixed among these 44 subunits in complex one are several redox active cofactors like FMN and iron sulfur clusters in the context of complex one and others uh, in these other complexes. Those redox active cofactors can't just be floating around in, in, in solution. They need to be managed very carefully or they will inappropriately donate and receive electrons and generate reactive oxygen species or reactive species that will end up being disruptive and, 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 uh, and uh, cause damage to the mitochondria. So this assembly process needs to be managed very, very carefully. And one of the ways that this happens is through very specific assembly factors that uh, are, are uh, contained within mitochondria that manage very specific and discrete steps in this assembly process, both for the proteins and for the cofactors. And then, even once all these, cofact uh, these complexes are, are assembled, everything's fine, that's not quite good enough because these complexes need to be coordinated with one another. It's become very clear through very elegant work that, that for, done by others that the flux through each of these complexes needs to be similar, such that if electrons enter complex one, they need to be able to then go on to uh, quinones and then on to complex three, and then through cytochrome C to complex four, and eventually be given to oxygen. If any one of those steps is blocked, those electrons stall where they are and have a higher propensity to then spin out and reduce something inappropriately and generate a reactive species that becomes damaging. And that, this is a, a, a toxic situation for mitochondria and for the cell. So these complexes also need to be managed with respect to one another, not just intrinsically. So these assembly factors are going to be the subject of what I'm going to talk about today, one specific family of these assembly factors. And we think that the study of this family of assembly factors has led us into a way to think about how not only is the assembly of each complex managed, but how that might be managed across this entire system and how it's coordinated with the availability of electrons for uh, uh, consumption by the electron transport chain. And this family of assembly factors is known as the LYR protein family. And this is just showing a multiple sequence alignment of a few of these family members and uh, not creatively, they are named the LYR family because they have a uh, uh, the canonical sequence includes a leucine, tyrosine, arginine motif, which turns out to be very important. And these, this family of assembly factors perform slightly different functions, but the commonality is that they perform functions that seem to be related to the activation of respiration. Typically, one of the latest steps in the uh, assembly and or activation of complexes in the mitochondria the assembly and activation of the ribosome, um, the building of iron sulfur clusters, again, all functions that are critically important for the proper activation of the electron transport chain and oxidative phosphorylation. And typically, these LYR factors act late in the process, in the 
final step of activation of assembly or activation. So what are this family of assembly factors and what is their commonality? Why is this LYR motif important, for example? That was really unclear until recently. When one common feature began to become clear from large-scale protein-protein interaction studies and from structural biology studies, all of these proteins turn out to bind one common, uh, have one common interaction, interaction partner, and that is a, a protein known as the acyl carrier protein, shown here in dark blue. This acyl carrier protein, again, interacts with all members, it appears, of the LYR protein family, and it does so through a very unique, I think unprecedented, kind of protein-protein uh, uh, interaction. The ACP has this cofactor and then fatty acid chain shown here in, 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 uh, in a filled structure that sticks right down into the middle of this three-helix bundle of the LYR proteins. And this seems to mediate much of the interaction surface between ACP and the LYR proteins. Again, a very, very unusual interaction surface. And it's not just this one example shown here with ACP and the ISD11 protein, which uh, was solved by Dave Berendo's lab, and we contributed a little bit to that. Also, it's found in others. So this is another example of ACP bound to a, a, a subunit of, of complex one. Very similar kind of organization. There are a few other helices and structures on this LYR protein, but that core three helix bundle is, is the same. So what is this ACP protein? And why does it have this very unusual uh, uh, moiety hanging off of it that ends up penetrating the three helix bundle of LYR proteins? So ACP, this is what I just showed you. ACP is a mitochondrial protein that has a 4-phosphopantothene cofactor, which has a terminal thiol, which serves as a site upon which fatty acids uh, can be attached. And why are fatty acids attached to ACP? It turns out that this is the scaffolding protein for a mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system. So many of us know about cytosolic fatty acid synthesis. An enzyme called FASN does this, a fascinating massive enzyme that builds fatty acids in the cytosol. There is a completely separate system for making fatty acids in a very similar way chemically in the mitochondria. And this is catalyzed by a series of enzymes, unlike FASN, which is a big polyprotein that has all of these enzymatic functions contained within one polypeptide. The mitochondrial system is catalyzed by several enzymes that catalyze each of these functions by acting on ACP which is the substrate for all of them. So acetyl-CoA is used. The carbon from acetyl-CoA is used to donate to this ACP protein, initiating a fatty acid chain. And then that fatty acid chain is then sequentially reduced and elongated in a cyclical way by these enzymes acting on ACP, eventually leading to a fatty acid attached to the 4-phosphopantothene cofactor on ACP. So why does this fatty acid synthesis system exist in mitochondria when 
as it's believed to be the case, the vast, vast majority of fatty acids are made in the cytosol. In fact, I think most people believe that all fatty acids that are used by the cell in membranes, etc., are all made by this cytosolic system. Why does this mitochondrial system even exist? Or why has it been maintained through evolution? The one thing we know is that this system is required for the synthesis of an eight-carbon eight fatty acid that then is sequentially modified through a series of steps to make lipoic acid, which is an essential cofactor for dehydrogenases in the mitochondria. And we'll come back to that. That's one thing we know that this fatty acid synthesis system does, but it appears to be the case that that's not the whole story. I mean, it, it's one thing to, to just think about, you know, eight carbon fatty acids could also be made by the cytosolic system. Why do we need to maintain this system to make that one species? Why can't they just be made in the cytosol and imported? But maybe even more uh, problematic than that is the fact that this system in the mitochondria is known to make longer acyl chains. And more importantly, that, that some of those acyl chains end up staying attached to ACP. So I just want to explain this assay that uh, we use to look at the acylation status of ACP. So what you see here is, is a couple of bands, and the top one here is the deacylated form of ACP. And when ACP becomes acylated, it actually migrates a little bit faster. And when we delete the system, when we genetically remove the system for making mitochondrial fatty acids through deletion of MCT1 or OAR1, you'll notice we lose completely the uh, acylated form of ACP. So, if the system was, made, was, was being used to make fatty acids that are then used for some other process, like lipoic acid, you'd imagine they'd be cleaved off of ACP and used. But in fact, it turns out to be the case that, you know, depending on how you look at it and in what specific situation, somewhere around 50% of ACP at any given time exists in the acylated form. Why is that? Well, it turns out to be the case that that is the form of ACP that binds these LYR proteins, as I alluded to before. So this seems to be one function of the mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system, is to make this acylated form of ACP that then interacts with these LYR proteins. So I just want to summarize a lot of data. I'm only going to show you a few pieces of data to, uh, to uh, illustrate what I'm going to tell you. But this is sort of the punchline. What we think this acylated form of ACP does is it binds to these different LYR proteins that are all circled in yellow, and by so doing, activates them. And we don't know exactly what we mean by activates them, but functionally it seems to activate them to then go on and perform their functions to stimulate iron sulfur cluster biogenesis, assembly and activation of, of the OxFos system, and the other functions that LYR proteins do. So this acylated form of ACP plays this very interesting allosteric role in activating LYR proteins to promote the, the stimulation of respiratory metabolism. And again, I'm just going to show you a couple of pieces of data that support that, uh, support this model. So what we find is, again, when we delete as boxed in yellow here, 
either of two different enzymes that are required for mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis, what you notice on the top here is a complete loss of these bands. And these bands are, are, are indicative of assembled complexes of the mitochondrial electron transport chain. And this is a native gel that allows us to see these fully assembled complexes. And you notice that when fatty acid synthesis is blocked, those complexes are almost completely eliminated. Um, we got lucky, and, and others published a really interesting observation that by mistargeting what is endogenously thought to be a medium chain fatty acyl-CoA synthase to mitochondria, that actually leads to the production of medium chain fatty acyl-CoAs that then we believe probably non-enzymatically couple to ACP to enable sort of ectopic acylation of ACP without the actions of the mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system. And in that context, in this, with mitochondrial, mitochondrial targeting of this FAA2 protein, we now see not a lot, but a little bit of ACP acylation in the absence of the mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system. And that is sufficient to cause, again, incomplete but substantial restoration of the assembly of the OxFos system. So I think this says that this acylation, acylated species of ACP seems to be critically important for the assembly and activation of this OxFos system. And one other bit of evidence for that is that none of this works if the serine on ACP to which that 4-phosphopantothene is attached is mutated. So all of these effects require the acylation of ACP to function. And the net effect of that is that while, a, while deletion of the mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system completely blocks respiration, or at least as shown here, the ability to grow on carbon sources that require respiration, like glycerol for the yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, expression of this mitochondrially targeted FAA2 is sufficient to enable growth in that setting. Again, coincident with now uh, regained assembly of the OxFos system. So just to summarize again, this acylated form of ACP, we think, plays this critical role in activating LYR proteins to enable their respiratory functions to be uh, uh, revealed. So this leads to a ton of questions that, that we're trying to answer and, and many in the field are trying to answer. answer. But I just want to focus on one of those questions for the remainder of this talk, and that is our attempts to understand why ACP acylation is used in this way. Why has evolution decided to couple the synthesis of fatty acids in the mitochondria with the activation, assembly and activation of respiratory metabolism? And this brings us back to how acyl ACP is typically made in the mitochondria. It's made from acetyl-CoA that, again, is used, the carbon from acetyl-CoA is used to both initiate and then elongate that fatty acid to generate the acylated form of ACP. 
And we think that puts acetyl-CoA in this very unique position. And the hypothesis that we came up with was actually proposed a few years back by Castaniotis and Hiltonen um, without so much data, very insightfully proposed this idea that this fatty acid synthesis system might be a way for the cell to monitor the availability of acetyl-CoA. And when acetyl-CoA is abundant, fatty acids might be built, and that would be a signal to the mitochondria that acetyl-CoA is present and available, and respiratory metabolism should be initiated and activated to consume that carbon to enable ATP production. And uh, the way that we set out to test this is by genetically decreasing the availability of mitochondrial acetyl-CoA through deletion of a protein complex known as the mitochondrial pyruvate carrier, or MPC, which I talked about in part two of this series. By, by deleting the MPC, that leads to decreased mitochondrial pyruvate uptake and thereby decreased production of mitochondrial acetyl-CoA. The net effect of that, as it relates to this system, is we see decreased steady-state abundance of this acylated form of ACP. It's not completely gone, but it's decreased in abundance, and that leads to a, a very modest effect on the uh, steady-state uh, abundance of the subunits of the electron transport chain systems, but a rather dramatic decrease in the assembly of those complexes as shown here, like you saw uh, previously when we deleted the entire system. Again, the effect is not as strong, but it's substantial. And again, that effect is completely reversed when we target this uh, fatty acid, uh, uh, this acyl-CoA synthetase, FA2, to mitochondria. So we think this tells us that acetyl-CoA plays a very important role in this system by being both the substrate for the TCA cycle that enables the liberation of electrons to feed the electron transport chain, but also acetyl-CoA is the substrate for this mitochondrial fatty acid synthesis system, which uses that acetyl-CoA to build octanoyl-CoA and eventually lipoic acid, which is required for the activation for the activity of the TCA cycle through its uh, necessity for uh, dehydrogenase enzymes there. But that acetyl-CoA is also used to build acylated forms of ACP that are stable. And that acylated ACP then, as I alluded to, binds to and activates LYR proteins to stimulate the assembly and activation of the respiratory complexes. I didn't allude to this at all, but it's very clear that the acylated form of ACP also is required for activation of mitochondrial translation. And we're starting to get some ideas of the mechanisms underlying that from beautiful structural work showing that ACP uh, actually binds to an assembly intermediate of the mitochondrial ribosome and, 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 and via other mechanisms, most likely. So I just want to point out one very interesting feature of this that we stumbled across. So what you're seeing here is something that I showed you on previous slides. Uh, when either the MPC, when the MPC is deleted, what we observed when we blot for this RIP1 protein 
which is the target of the LYR protein. So RIP1 is actually inserted into complex 3 by virtue of acyl ACP interacting with this MZM1 protein, which is an LYR protein. And when we blot for RIP1, what it looks like is that complex 3 is completely disassembled. There's almost none of it. But when you blot for another subunit of complex 3, in this case QCR7, what you notice is, is again, that the fully assembled form of complex 3 is depleted. But what you see are smaller assemblages of complex 3. So what this means to us is that perhaps it, with subtle decreases in mitochondrial acetyl-CoA, as we see with an MPC1 deletion, this doesn't lead the cell to completely degrade all the oxidative complexes, but to hold them in a form where most of it is assembled, but that complex is not activated fully. And that full activation can only be accomplished by virtue of the acylated form of ACP interacting with LYR proteins and leading and triggering this last step in respiratory activation. And this makes sense because it, it, would, it would, again, it would make no sense for a cell to experience a short-term starvation and respond to that by degrading this entire system. And we think this is a way for that system to be held in an inactive form where it's not dangerous, but without completely degrading it. And this is managed, we think, by this uh, acyl ACP LYR system that couples nutrient availability with activation of the LYR system. So I just want to thank the people that did this work. The work that I described was almost completely done by a great former PhD student, John Van Branken. And thanks to him and thanks to the others that contributed to this. And thanks to you for listening. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.